metalcore fans and fitness enthusiasts. My name is Evan. I am going to be your host for episode number two of Metalcore and Muscle. If you missed that initial episode, be sure to go back and check it out where I cover my top 10 songs with massive breakdowns that are guaranteed to help you hit some new PRs in the gym. I also cover some fitness tips toward the end, so you don't want to miss that one. Um, Be sure to go check it out. And for today's episode, I'm going to kick it off by discussing some of my experiences competing in the NPC as a natural men's physique athlete. And for some of you that may be thinking about competing, um, bodybuilding certainly changed my life, but not necessarily for the better. So I'm going to be touching on that in today's episode. I will also be covering some of the science behind how music motivates us during exercise. And today's show will be concluded with my top pick for song of the week. So if you're settled in for a long drive, cleaning your house, if you're listening to this at work, you should probably get back to work. But if not, um, whatever you're doing when you listen to podcasts, just sit back and enjoy this one. Without further ado, let's get into the mix. So from a young age, both boys and girls are exposed to media, messaging, images, etc. that influence the way that those kids want to look and what they believe is acceptable to look like. And the primary example that you may already be familiar with is, you know, Barbie dolls or toys. So for me, I grew up in, I was born in the kind of early 90s. So growing up with um, sort of less technology than kids nowadays, um, you know, for us, it was, you know, warrior action figures and, you know, for girls, probably like Barbie dolls. So, you know, with those warrior action figures like, you know, G.I. Joe's or I remember a, a Batman toy that I had, they're generally extremely muscular for the, the male action figures. And, you know, this was really no exception um, to when I was growing up as far as being exposed to these um, ultra muscular um, depictions of what uh, what a male should look like, and I remember watching movies like Hercules as a kid, um, where you have this epic transformation from you know a skinny kind of scrawny kid as Hercules to where um, he becomes extremely muscular after his training, um, and then you know movies like Troy, if you're familiar with that one with Brad Pitt, where you know he's a a soldier, you know, very muscular. As a kid, I remember watching these things, and, and that those are the images that are kind of ingrained into your mind for what a male should look like. Um, and it's always the male hero that's extremely muscular and also very lean generally as well. And you know, I even remember playing video games where the primary character was ripped, and you know, some of them that come to mind. Um, one of them was called Spartan Total Warrior. And, you know, that makes me think of 300, that, that movie as well, where the entire cast is muscular and very lean as well. And then even games like Madden, um, you could increase the muscularity on your, on your player if you were creating one. And I remember when you got the kind of the muscle dial over a certain number, then all of a sudden the player would have, you know, veins blasting through their arms and... Um, you could always make the player more muscular. So these were things that as a kid, I remember being exposed to and, you know, thinking of it now, maybe subliminally kind of channeling that, that messaging in to the audience that as a male, this is what you should look like. And, you know, I can kind of spare you all of the details on how these different things influenced my upbringing and my interests, but it's no doubt that as kids, we were influenced by these quote-unquote heroes, and that influence made us want to look a certain way. I remember lifting weights in my basement, you know, in like before I was even in middle school. It's something that is, you know, I believe ingrained into the male kind of uh, male society to, you know, try to be really muscular. So, I think nowadays this is no different than social media and this look we believe to be acceptable and what we aspire to look like is very prominent on social media channels like Instagram. So, 
you may be wondering how, what does this have to do with competing in men's physique? Um, I'll, I'll kind of get to my experience here in a moment, but the point that I'm trying to drive home is that these fitness influencers and people that you maybe follow online have some degree of influence over your life. They're an influencer. They're, they're, um, influencing your life and maybe your goals. And the problem is that we're only seeing sort of a, a snapshot of their life and we're not really seeing the things that they may be doing behind the scenes, like if they're editing their pictures or if they're using performance-enhancing drugs, especially in the bodybuilding arena, um, or anything else that may be going on behind the scenes. So um, because of that, our perception of what a male or female should look like is somewhat skewed, which thus potentially alters our own perception of self, which can lead to dissatisfaction with our own looks. And when I competed in men's physique, I tried my absolute hardest to get as lean as humanly possible. And I never really felt like I was lean enough for my shows, even though I was doing a, a 16 week prep in one case where, you know, I was never quite felt lean enough and I was really just starving myself. And, you know, I would compare my physique to those that I saw online on Instagram. And this was, you know, keep in mind back in 2014, where these athletes were not nearly as transparent about their drug use back then as they are now. And, you know, I was somewhat naive and not really knowing that they were using, they were probably using drugs like Clen, Anivar, or even in some cases like extreme diuretics to get into the shape that they were in. And I wasn't seeing myself as lean as those guys. So then I felt like, oh, there's, there's more cutting, you know, I can lose more weight and it's, you know, sort of that, um, you get into that kind of conundrum when you're, um, maybe naive to what's actually going on behind the scenes. So, um, like I said, I was naive, but some degree of transparency or honesty probably would have protected me from the mental, um, and physical issues that I encountered, uh, with one of those being what I believe was the development of an eating disorder, and, you know, I want to preface with I was never officially diagnosed with an eating disorder. Um, but after looking at some of the criteria or symptoms, I do believe that I, you know, I believe that I could have been diagnosed. And that maybe was a, a fault on my part with not seeking help. So um, I want to get into some of that here in a moment. So and, you know, I also believe that I developed some body dysmorphia as well. And in particular, muscular dysmorphia. So when you think of an eating disorder, if I said, you know, what, do you, what are your thoughts on eating disorders? You know, if I asked you that question, what would, you, what would come to your mind? Or what does come to your mind as I ask that? Um, you know, you can think about that for a second. Pause this. Just kind of reflect on that thought. Um, but prior to my experiences... I would have said something related to anorexia or bulimia, which is what I could remember from health class. So I remember in, you know, middle school health, we watched the movie Kate's Secret. And, you know, it's about, I believe, a mother that's hiding an eating disorder. I believe it was bulimia where she would purge um, or eat massive amounts of food and then um, subsequently purge that food out. Um and, you know, we didn't really take the subject matter that serious. I remember watching that as a kid and thinking like, oh, this is weird. Like, you know, this is something that would never happen to me, you know, or anything like that. So, um, you know, I think many people also believe that eating disorders are, are really not common among males and that they're only prevalent among females or that, you know, you think of anorexia and oh, that's a female only um, disorder, but that's not necessarily the case. So, um, according to nationaleatingdisorders.org, in the United States, eating disorders will affect 10 million males at some point in their lives. And this clearly reveals that eating disorders aren't a female-only issue. And this is something that I want to sort of bring to light here, um, especially in the bodybuilding sphere. So some of the kind of general reasons why you may not associate males with eating disorders is because family members may be less likely to notice the signs and symptoms as they present somewhat differently in males than females. And there's also some professional bias that can lead to less diagnoses as well. 
and there's, like I said, differing signs and symptoms. And there's some exclusion of males by eating disorder treatment facilities as well, which can kind of play into the fact that these disorders maybe are underdiagnosed in males when really they're actually maybe more prevalent. And there's also a deficiency of research on eating disorders among males as well, with less than 1% of all eating disorder research focusing exclusively on males. So the National Association for Males with Eating Disorders estimates that between 25 and 40 excuse me, 40% of people with all eating disorders are males. So this is definitely um, fairly common among males, and I believe it's extremely the case in the bodybuilding sphere. So before I cover some of the research that I kind of dove into for this topic, I do want to touch on my personal experience and what I um, sort of had happen with competing and how I believe that competing in bodybuilding or um, focusing on bodybuilding can somewhat uh, exacerbate these eating disorders or body dysmorphia among males. So for myself, I competed in my first men's physique show back in 2013. So back then, if you're familiar with the sport at all, uh, men's physique is a division within the National Physique Committee, which is the MPC where the athletes wear swim shorts or board shorts on stage as opposed to the standard um, sort of speedo or mankini that they call it for the open bodybuilders. So when I first got into competing, classic physique wasn't really a, a category in the NPC. And so you had bodybuilding, you had men's physique. And by the time that I did my first show, um, the the physique standard for men's physique was getting a little bit bigger, but it wasn't nearly what it is nowadays. So you could think of, if you guys are familiar with influencers on social media, um, you're probably familiar with Steve Cook or maybe even Jeff Side. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the more modern um, physique athletes out there. Um, you know, obviously Andre Ferguson is a, is a big name in men's physique now, but these physiques are meant to be muscular, but still look athletic and not nearly as big as open bodybuilders. So for me, I was under the impression that these physiques were achievable naturally. And, you know, it was really the time that men's physique was picking up stride. So I did my first show in 2013 as a 19-year-old male, and I had had aspirations of playing college football, and that didn't really pan out. So I wanted a, a different outlet for my kind of competitive juices, if you will, to try to um, compete in something else and put my my training focus into a different avenue. And so that was kind of how I channeled it into men's physique. I was following a lot of these influencers on Instagram at that time. And for me, it just seemed like a natural sort of progression for my weightlifting. And so I entered into my first show and I ended up taking third place. I was happy with the outcome, and at this point, I didn't really have uh, an eating disorder yet, I don't believe, um, but definitely restrictive eating patterns. So some of the things that I did back then that were that would raise a red flag now is when I went to visit my, um, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, in a different town, I would pack all of my food up in a like a big Costco bag. And I would take that with when I would go visit her on the weekends. And, you know, for people that are really into bodybuilding, that may seem somewhat normal. But for the general populace, um, that's quite bizarre that I would take all this food for just a couple days visiting my girlfriend. And that should have been one of the first red flags. So if you notice that type of restrictive eating in somebody else, um, that might be a red flag for an eating disorder. So... <clears throat> For me, I would take my food with on the weekends. I was really strict about what I would eat. Um, you know, very, you know, very strict with it. And leading up to this first show, um, you know, I remember not even eating a bite of anything else. I remember one of my friends giving me a Jolly Rancher, and I was obsessively. Um, focused on how I ate that Jolly Rancher and it was off of my 
meal plan, if you will. So those are red flags immediately, um, things that I should have been aware of. Now, I wasn't doing any um, any binging at that point. I was just very, very regimented and restrictive with my um, my intake of food at that time. So I did the show, and after the competition, you're probably familiar with cheat meals. So after people finish a competition, they they eat. For one night, they're allowed to eat all of the food that they can stomach, and then they're back on their plan the next day. That's kind of a general kind of rundown of what happens after a show. So I remember I hadn't eaten pizza for like over a year and was really craving pizza. So after the show was done, I ate all the food that I wanted to eat. And I remember not really having too bad of a, of a relationship with food after that. I didn't, I didn't do cheat meals after that. And I transition, transitioned into a bulking phase after that first show. And so, you know, I don't want to go into every single show that I did because that'll take a long time. But I did four competitions and they were all in the MPC. And my placings were third, it was third, fourth, fifth, and then I placed fourth in my last one. And kind of in that whole span of, of years that I was competing, still maintained a lot of those restrictive dietary um, practices, if you will. So, um, you know, touching back on social media, if you follow people that compete, they're probably sharing, you know, maybe motivational stuff about that, maybe reinforcing things like cheat meals or reinforcing, you know, sticking to your diet, that type of stuff. So, um, remember that because I'm going to touch on some studies that examine social media's influence on um, sort of uh, dietary habits and examining what is shared on social media regards in regards to that. So, um, yeah, after my second show, that that was this was the first time that I ever ate so much food that I that I vomited, and I remember that my brother and I did this competition together. And for the, for myself, I did an eight-week cut for the show, and I felt like I looked the best that I had ever looked in a competition there, and I got fourth place. So a little bit discouraging, but um, at that point of a diet, you're not focused on your placing that much. You just want to eat after the show. And what happened after that competition was a planned cheat day, and... You know, you may have heard of all oh, the rocks cheat day where he eats so many calories. So this is kind of what it was like. It was I'm going to I'm going to eat everything that I can in this one day. And then and it was a Sunday, I believe, because the show was on a Saturday. So basically binge out Saturday night. And then Sunday was I'm going to get everything out of my system that I that I want to eat on Sunday. And then I'll be back to my regular plan on Monday. Right. And this is the the sort of thought pattern that I know is prevalent among other fitness competitors or bodybuilding competitors. So um, another red flag to be aware of. So what what I did was after the show, my brother and I went to, we had this all planned out, all the food that we were going to eat. So we went to a breakfast place, had breakfast, then we were going to get some pizza in. So we ordered pizza later on in the day and we had a bunch of treats and other stuff in between. And then we went home to visit our parents and they made us like a special dinner there and then we went out to get um, all-you-can-eat Chinese food. And then after that, more food like Oreos and stuff. And by the end of that day, I remember it, it just hit real quick. Just a sudden um, upset stomach. And I was full, obviously. But um, I remember then, you know, spare you the details. But I puked three times and then subsequently decided to continue eating pizza and other stuff. I mean, that just shows you the the degree of, um, you know, kind of the, the disordered eating patterns that these competitions can, um, can foster. So you restrict for so long that when you're free to let go for a day, you completely lose control. So that's what happened to me after that show. So after the other show, same thing. And after my final show the the competing was so hard on all the people in my life like my wife now girlfriend at the time was so hard on them and props to her for sticking through that with me because there were times where this obsession over winning a show and obsession over um everything else just it it takes over your life and so after this last show 
I wasn't going to compete again. And this is really when I believe the, the eating disorder set in really hard, right? And also obsessive exercise. So what happened after this show was I met the step mill. And the Stairmaster is one of those type of cardio pieces that you sweat a lot. And for me, I would sort of use that, that cardio equipment obsessively to try to drop water weight and, and sort of reset my body. And after this last show, I was doing a cheat meal every single weekend. So basically how I highlighted like eating everything in one day, that was how I would do that once a week. So you can only imagine the the level of um, internal damage that I was probably causing to my body at that time, in addition to the psychological damage that was obviously happening, but I didn't see it myself. And basically, I would do a cheat meal every single week. I would restrict very hard throughout the week, and then on the weekend, I would let loose and have one meal that, or not one meal, I would have one night where I would just eat everything that I wanted to eat. And, you know, to once again spare you a lot of the details, that would happen over and over and over every single week. And the, the dietary restriction was very much there. But the addition of obsessive exercise entered the arena after I was done competing. So after I was done, there, was no, there were no goals to go for anymore as far as, you know, building my physique for a show. So I wasn't really bulking. You know, because when you bulk, you add so many additional calories that the cheat meal becomes essentially, um, you just don't want that much food because you're already consuming enough. So I was still sort of starving myself during the week to a level where I needed that, that release on the weekend. But back to the exercise portion, I would use that step mill to reset my, my body, which if you think about eating disorders, the binging occurs on the weekend, so loss of self-control consuming massive amounts of calories, but instead of vomiting to purge, using exercise is a common symptom for males with eating disorders. So you use exercise as a form to purge those calories. And that's exactly what I was doing. So, you know, to cut some some time out of this, this kept up for a while, but it got really bad when I was also somewhat, um, you know, I socially sort of isolated myself because of this passion for bodybuilding and building my physique that I was getting to a point where I would spend nearly six hours total in the gym on some days after those cheat meals. And what I would do is a session of fasted cardio on the step mill. I would do 45 minutes at a fast intensity and then I would do another 45 minutes after that at a lower intensity. Then I would go home eat and do my day and whatever I had to do at the time. And then I would come back to the gym later in the day, do a full hard training session. And then I would go back on the step mill and do like another 30 or 40 minutes. So, I mean, that is not normal exercise behavior. And, you know, there's and some other things that I was doing that time as well was I was exercising to a point where I would nearly black out and this is where I I want to touch on that this sort of I call it like motivational porn, right? Like you have Greg Plitt is one of those guys and rest in peace to Greg Plitt. He was a huge motivator, but this is where I think the obsessive nature for some people um you can get into trouble with these um motivational characters. So like Greg Plitt, David Goggins and even Tom Platts were a couple guys that um sort of I started to follow and in um you, you hear things they say, you know, like you don't, you don't say goodbye until the pain says hello. Um, when it starts burning, that's when your set starts. And then with um, Tom Platts, you know, you always have five more reps in the tank. So in the midst of this eating disorder, I was also taking those kind of motivational characters words at almost this literal value of like, I'm not a failure, I'm a failure if I don't go to this level of exhaustion in the gym. And the crazy part was I wasn't even doing a show or a competition. And I hope you guys are kind of zooming out as I'm describing this and seeing this downward spiral of losing my identity with sports, transitioning that into physique and becoming obsessive over it and how um, these dietary patterns can be very restrictive and obsessive. And, And then also the exercise component too. So keep in mind, I was doing that much cardio. And then when I would do a leg training session, 
I would take every set like that. You got five more in the tank, five more. And it was this mental battle that I would go through to go work out. And so this is sort of the, like I said, the downward spiral of all of this, where I I was so restrictive with my food and so restrictive with my, my training as well, where you go into this very, very dark place where you could imagine spending six hours at the gym was taking time out of my daily life. And this is also something to be aware of with eating disorders or even body dysmorphia where this obsession for a muscular physique can, if it's pulling you away from your your daily life and interrupting your your daily activities, then you've got yourself a problem. And for me, I ended up, I was in graduate school for my master of public health at that time. And I actually dropped out of school because, and looking back at it, I think it was because this time that I was obsessively focused on building my physique was taking up all of my time and my energy. There were nights where I would get three hours of sleep because I needed to get up and get to that step mill in the morning. And, you know, for those of you that are still listening, you can hear how crazy this sounds. But to someone who is going through that in that moment, it's very real. And and that obsession is very much there. And there's an anxiety component behind it. So with cheat meals, the anxiety was pulling me like, you have this one night to get all this food in, and then tomorrow you have to go back on your, your regular diet. And that's what would happen is then I would be anxious about getting all that food in in that one night, that it would make me um, super rigid with my, my daily plans and that because I had to have it that night. And then also, um, you know, that rigidity comes in the form of the exercise as well. So you can see how this was a recipe for ultimate disaster. And, you know, there were times where the one thing that I read was that the the cheat meals, a lot of that food would be very acidic and that um, acidity in your throat and esophagus can cause bleeding. And then you actually defecate blood. And that actually happened to me. And I, I know it sounds gruesome and very, you know, probably too much detail for some of you listeners, but this is very much a reality of this type of, of, um, psychological disorder. And it's very real. And I think that if I didn't come out of this, um, I would have been in a really dark place, both mentally and physically with my body as well. And I think that it's so ironic that fitness is supposed to be this promotion of health and now knowing that many of these people that are in the best shape of their lives are probably mentally miserable and and I mean best shape of their lives is being super lean like stage ready shredded and they're also extremely rigid with their their bodies and, and abusing their bodies in ways with those cheat meals so um, you know I hope I haven't lost you in the mix with all this stuff but it gives you an idea of the depths that I was falling to in the midst of both an obsessive, um, what probably OCD with, with workouts and training, but then also this disordered eating pattern as well. So then it becomes to a point where you might wonder how, well, how did, how did you get out of that situation? And, you know, it got really bad to where I was doing two cheat meals in a week and, keeping up that in that crazy high exercise volume throughout the week. And, you know, I was actually withering away my physique. I was losing weight because, and, and it seems odd, you know, you're eating these massive amounts of food, but you're, you're losing weight. And that's what was happening because I was just, I, I think I was atrophying my muscle because I was doing so much cardio. And, you know, the two, two cheat meal nights a week, I would do, you know, a pint of ice cream, a case of cookies, um, you know, donuts, Reese's cups, sometimes cereal. I had certain foods that I would always go to and I would eat all of that in one night. And, you know, I think that I had probably gotten to a level of, you know, stretch in my stomach that I was able to handle that food without, you know, at least without throwing up. But I would get to a point where I would just lie on the floor and I was down for the count because I was just so full. And so, um, you know, my wife helped me 
sort of snap out of the obsessive exercise before I snapped out of the eating disorder. So what I, I believe my wife basically did cognitive behavioral therapy on me to sort of snap me out of um to snap me out of, you know, why are you exercising that much? Do you really need to do that much? And and it helps me pull back the volume on the training, realizing, hey, you don't have to go that hard on your sets. Um, you know, you don't have to train that hard in the gym and you'll still be, you'll be okay. You know, and, it, and I, it wasn't like fixed overnight, but it helped me sort of snap out of that. So that was one step forward, but I still had the eating disorder. And what I believe helped the most with the eating disorder was traveling and I know that, you know, if you if any of the stuff that I'm saying is resonating with you and you believe that you have an eating disorder, um, I encourage you to actually go seek help with a therapist or a mental health professional because they're going to know exactly what to do. And I don't think that there's as much taboo nowadays for seeing a therapist as there was as there was back in the day. But still, I know that it can be intimidating. And I have I haven't even seen a therapist about any of this stuff. So obviously, you know, I can't really speak on that or tell you what to do. But um, for me, traveling helped me break out of that cycle. So I traveled to Australia with my wife. And in that trip, I was, I was pulled away from my daily routine, I wasn't able to go buy cheat meal food, I wasn't able to exercise, I wasn't able to do any of the, the patterns that I was normally doing. And that sort of broke me out of that cycle. And I realized that, like, I knew going into that trip that I had a problem, but I couldn't snap out of it. I couldn't do anything about it. And I would try to quit doing the cheat meals, but you still have control over your life in that situation. And so traveling, you know, it snapped me out of that. And when I returned, I was able to implement steps to um, to better manage that eating disorder. And I still dealt with it. I still did cheat meals, but it wasn't as bad. It was more like fixing the the low-hanging fruit at that point like so if I ate lunch at work with my coworkers, it wasn't the end of the world if like so if I ate the lunch with my coworkers, then I didn't have to go home and do a cheat meal because I ate off of plan it was managing my anxiety as well realizing that hey there's no competition there's no deadline you can have a, a burger and fries for lunch and still eat your normal food at night. That's kind of how it went. So it took a long time and I feel like the traveling sort of snapped me out of it, but it took a lot of work after that to, to manage my anxiety to a point where you realize, Hey, I can, I can eat like a normal human being and still have health and fitness goals. And that's my ultimate hope for people is that they can find that balance between being functional, healthy, And still, you know, pursuing goals for building muscle mass. And that's where this whole podcast is metalcore and muscle because I still love weight training. I love working out, but it doesn't have that sort of obsessive tone to it. So that's kind of where I am at now. Um, There there are a lot of steps that it's taken to get to that point. Um, And, you know, I hope that you can um, empathize with people that are going through that as well and help direct them in the right way. So I don't want to you know, go too much more in depth into that, um, but it does give you an idea of what the kind of the dark side of competing is and can be. There, there are pros to it. You understand how to track food. You understand um, you, you have a better knowledge of nutrition and training, which is great but it can lead to that dark place. And, you know, obviously it's going to be different with everyone. I think that maybe I have more tendencies to have higher anxiety and and dip into that obsessive sort of pattern where some people can compete and they don't have any trouble with it. So, um, yeah, it's just, it kind of depends on the person. So in my research for today's episode, I wanted to pull a few different articles that I found that touched on some of the impacts of cheat meals and also some of the um, information that researchers have found relating to cheat meals and eating disorders and body dysmorphia among males and physique athletes. So one of the first studies that I found is called Go Big or Go Home, a thematic content analysis of pro-muscularity websites. 
So pro-muscularity websites have some things in common with pro-eating disorder websites. So pro-eating disorder websites are out there where uh, people with maybe anorexia nervosa, for example, are promoting thinness and they're trying to, maybe they share information on how to elude, you know, being diagnosed, that sort of thing, and where they promote extreme thinness. So the similar thing has been found in bodybuilding websites where they promote extreme muscularity. And there are sort of themes that are connected between the two. So this study examined the content of pro-muscularity websites. And um, I'm just reading off some of the highlights here. So these sites promoted potentially non-healthful behaviors in the pursuit of muscularity. So like I said before, in thinking of fitness and health, um, it, fitness is, or, you know, bodybuilding is often deemed as a health contest or, you know, a healthy behavior of weightlifting, but it can actually have these non-healthful behaviors ingrained into it, which is like cheat meals or obsessive exercise, like I was talking about. So, um, they found emergent themes that overlapped with documented eating disorder features and their findings may assist in the detection and treatment of muscularity related concerns. So, um, some things that, they found with these pro-anorexia nervosa websites or pro-eating disorder websites is that people that visited them had increased body dissatisfaction and increased dieting and negative effects kind of associated with all of that. Um, you know, males tend to be more muscularity oriented as opposed to thinness oriented, which you kind of see with, um, I don't want to generalize, but you do see that at times with females and anorexia and that. So, um, they've kind of found in there, and this is included in their introduction, that Western society portrays the ideal male body as being lean and muscular, which is what I was talking about with a lot of these movies. Um, it's not just being lean, it's also having this high degree of muscularity as well. So they, the study analyzed, like they said, pro-muscularity web content to see if it would include info and themes that are consistent with body image issues and eating disorder attitudes and behaviors. So they broke their themes down into eight categories, and they included rigid dietary practices, which had the highest percentage of themes in the content that they analyzed. Rigid exercise rules was in the second place spot with 18.4%. The broader benefits of muscularity, the encouragement of the drive for size. So you can think of like forums, you know, we got to get bigger, bro, bulking forever. That, that's the type of content that they were analyzing in this study. Um, the labeling of non-ideal body and marginalizing other areas of life, which is something that I touched on with neglecting school and other responsibilities in my life. Um, the use of muscle enhancing substances and um, lastly, minimizing medical risk. So I'm just kind of reading off the abstract here. Pro-muscularity websites provide explicit material surrounding potentially non-healthful muscularity oriented eating and exercise practices. Um, so obviously some concern there. Um, one thing that this study did touch on is cheat meals. So they, they mentioned this briefly in their discussion that cheat meals and beneficial metabolic effects of consuming vast amounts of calorie dense foods in a discrete time period. So this is something that people believe surrounding cheat meals is that they have some sort of benefit to them metabolically. And, um, I personally haven't done the research on that specific benefit, but I know that it's a slippery slope where, you know, there is that loss of control. So um, that's one of the things, one of the studies that I wanted to touch on. So they found those themes within the content that they analyzed. And one of the, the top theme was rigid dietary practices, which um, relating it to my experience was initially in competing was that extreme rigidity with taking my food with me to visit my girlfriend. So that's the first study. Um, then the next study I wanted to touch on is the thematic content analysis of hashtag cheat meals on social media, characterizing an emerging dietary trend. So Pilla and colleagues performed this study. Um, they basically looked through and extracted data from Instagram with posts using the hashtag cheat meal um, tag on it. So they pulled on the first day of data extraction, they pulled over 1 million posts. And 
they coded their content by food, person, and written content associated with the post. So the food, they looked at the volume present. So does it constitute a cheat meal? How many calories is it? Um, the type of food present, is it more of a protein food or is it non-protein and just a bunch of, you know, like junk food? Um, they looked at the person, so the gender, the action of the person, are they flexing? Uh, what are they doing in the photo? And then their body type, are they really muscular? And then lastly, they looked at written content, so quotes in the images, um, written captions, that sort of thing. So some of their findings, um, over half of the images displayed volumes of food consistent with an objective binge episode, so about 54.5% of the posts. Um, there's a significant association between volume and type of food, whereby large volumes of food were more likely to be calorie dense and not high in protein. Um, there was a lot of body exposure. So, um, they use the term highly physique salient. So people were flexing their muscles. They were wearing revealing attire. So probably for males, I'm assuming like a stringer. Um, and there was content depicting muscular bodies. Um, and that was more likely to feature engagement in, in body selfies and body exposure. So, the posts that had written content were related to normalizing cheat meals and supporting this idea of rewarding your hard work with a cheat meal. So uh, one of the things of these findings, uh, one of these findings that I think is uh, most alarming is um, <clears throat> the sort of exposure of the muscles with the cheat meal food. So you're kind of giving this idea that I'm really muscular and lean. I can afford this food. I'm giving myself a nice reward for all the work that I'm doing. So these captions that they found endorsed dietary restriction and commitment to their exercise routines. Um, and they found this kind of process of planning cheat meals was presented. Um, the researchers use this word presented as goal directed behavior. So you're, you're doing this cheat meal, there's a purpose behind it. That's what they were kind of promoting and they found in these images. So I thought this was really interesting. Um, the, the captions that they were using suggested uh, loss of control over their, their diet. So like, for example, um, oops, you know, I ate one pizza turned into, you know, a whole sleeve of donuts. I guess I'll get on my diet Monday. Like that might've been like one of the, an example of the caption. So this is things, these are, I think this is alarming because it's, it's dispersed into all of the social media. And we know that social media has a big influence over our lives. So promoting these cheat meals and promoting this sort of, um, reward for your hard work can be, I think sort of alarming. So last study I wanted to touch on is titled, um, symptoms of muscle dysmorphia, body dysmorphic disorder and eating disorders in a non-clinical population of adult weightlifters. So they had 648 participants. Um, they had, I'll just cut to the chase here and get to the findings. So um, some of the, the research that they had done and included in their introduction is that individuals with both muscle dysmorphia and body dysmorphic disorder. So muscle dysmorphia is a, a subsection of body dysmorphia where you're focused and obsessive on um, your, your muscularity. Body dysmorphia can just be a, um, a dislike with a feature of yours, you know, and kind of obsessively focusing on that. So um, individuals with both muscle dysmorphia and body dysmorphic disorder had increased rates of attempted suicide, increased prevalence of anabolic androgenic steroid use, more likely to weight train excessively, and um, follow a strict diet when compared with individuals with body dysmorphia, uh, body dysmorphic disorder and um, compulsive exercise and muscle dysmorphia are somewhat of uh, kind of, like I said, subsets of body dysmorphic disorder. So they found that 33.8% of these 648 participants, these adult weightlifters, um, almost 34% were at risk of an eating disorder. So I think that's just alarming in and of itself. I think that the sort of cheat meal idea lacks balance and it lacks, like I said, self-control and it tries to promote this idea of balance. But, um, I think that it really lacks it because it's very, very rigid. So I found this research to be interesting. I don't want to touch on it and spend too much time on it with today's episode. But, um, you know, I think that, you know, based on these findings that serious 
competitive bodybuilding can increase the risk of eating disorders. And so if you're looking to go into that route, um, I use this episode to warn you and just to be really aware and um, be safe. You know, it's your mental health, it's your, your well-being, but it's, it's not only just you, it's the other people around you as well. Um, you know, if you have a girlfriend or if you're married or things like that, um, those people around you, it's a very selfish sport and they're, they may um, be hurt in the process if you're not careful. And, you know, I don't want to be negative about it either. I know people that compete and they are fine and they don't ruin that relationship with food. But I know from personal experience with myself, um, it just was not the the best experience. So I want to take the last few minutes here to touch on a couple, a couple more studies, but these ones are not focused on cheat meals or eating disorders. These are focused more on the effect of music on exercise performance. So um, basically what these studies found, um, I pulled two studies. One of them is from um, Thakari and colleagues, and it is titled Effective Music Tempo on Exercise Performance and Heart Rate Among Young Adults. So um, basically their, their study tried to evaluate the effect of music on exercise performance in young untrained subjects. So they tested the effect of music on submax exercise performance time duration in these young adults. So heart rate during exercise and um, exercise time duration were recorded and the results showed that total exercise duration in whole group with music was significantly greater than exercise duration without music. So um, remember that. And what I'm going to go into for the next study was the effect of music on anaerobic exercise performance. And this is by um, Atten T. So that's the author. I'm sorry. It's um, Tulin Atten did this, performed this study. Um, seems to be just one author. Um, and they found that listening to music and its rhythm cannot enhance anaerobic performance and cannot change the physiological response to submaximal exercise. So um, kind of what I take out of these two studies is that exercise increased that duration, but not it didn't have an effect on aerobic exercise performance. So it seems like the music will have maybe more of a benefit if you're doing um, more of a steady state cardio or more of a aerobic form of exercise. So I found this to be interesting. I didn't dive too deep into this research, but um, I thought it was applicable based on last week's episode, or not last week's, last episode talking about using breakdowns and how music can motivate us. I just wanted to touch on a couple different studies here and what, what they found with music and motivation. So like I said, it appears that the um, the music has impacts on that aerobic, but not so much on anaerobic exercise performance. So um, when you're doing your cardio next time, or doing any type of running, if that's you, um, maybe test it out, play your favorite song and see, see how well you go with no music versus music. So I wanted to tie in some of the music here. The last thing that I want to touch on in today's episode is my song of the week pick. And if, for those of you that are on Spotify, you probably have a release radar that comes out every Friday with a whole list of new songs. So what I wanted to do for today's episode is pick one of the songs from my release radar and highlight it for today's episode. So the song that I have chosen for this week is a song by the band Aviana. And Aviana formed in 2016. They are a Swedish metalcore band, and they have two albums out, Polarize, which came out in 2017, and Epicenter, which came out in 2019. So they've released a couple new tracks this year, and the song that I am highlighting is called Rage. And just by the title, you can assume that this is going to be a heavy banger for your workouts. Um, Some interesting kind of factoid that I found out about the band uh, recently in 2023, of four band members quit, and the lead singer carried on by himself and um, released this song, I'm assuming, with whole new band members. So I thought it was really cool. It's a nice track, um, very metalcore, I would say. There's not really any cleans in this one, so it's good for working out. It's not going to slow down on you at all. And they do like a kind of a sing-scream chorus. Um, right about with 40 seconds left in the track, there's a massive breakdown um, where the, the, the vocalist uses varied high and low screams. So it, it really um, 
it, it's very set apart from the rest of the song and obviously there's tempo changes with a breakdown but but man it hits hard and if you're just playing playing it out um you know doing your set maybe try to hit a big set towards the end of that song so my pick for workout song of the week is rage by aviana so be sure to give that one um a listen check it out maybe follow the band on instagram help them out a little bit but um, that is going to do it for today's episode of Metalcore and Muscle, episode number two. Um, today's episode was very focused on um, eating disorders, mental health, and um, surrounding physique competitions. Um, in wrapping up today's episode, you know, I just want to remind you guys out there that um, you know, if you are experiencing any of those those symptoms or any of that, um, you know, try to find balance as best you can in your life you know this whole fitness journey should be a marathon not a sprint you've probably heard that before but i think that it's so i think it rings so true you know you want to there's going to be a time where we're all going to be very old and um not very muscular at all and functional fitness will be the most important i think at that time so we are able to actually function as um, older adults, and you know, I think in the meantime, finding that that good balance is, is so important. And what I mean by balance is being able to to work out and enjoy yourself a little bit here and there as well, and not let it become obsessive. So, um, for you guys, I encourage you to check out the Instagram MC underscore Muscle. Um, I'll try to make a post with every episode. So if you have comments on any of the content that I covered in today's episode, be sure to go there, um, leave a comment, follow the page. Um, if you have other songs that you maybe think that should have been workout song of the week, be sure to drop them there as well in the comment section. And I will be happy to listen to those and respond to your comments. So um, hope you guys take care out there. If you're battling those, um, you know, that rigid diet or any of that, my biggest takeaway is finding that balance. And if you need to, if you feel like you need to seek out help, um, you know, please do so. And, you know, I encourage you guys to, to relax and try to enjoy life as best you can. So um, hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, hopefully you found the information helpful on eating disorders and maybe interesting. And I hope to put out some more episodes touching on the topic as time goes on. But um, I hope you guys take care out there. Stay safe, stay healthy, and enjoy the workouts and enjoy the music. All right, guys. Take care. <laughs>